Thanks for joining me, Pete Holzman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Isabel McLemore, the Managing Director of Communications at USA Swimming. Isabel's career has included a full spectrum of experiences. Some of her work has involved the promotion of grassroots participation in sports. Local level, local, local. You have to go local, arming people with how to help tell your story. She has also traveled the world to work with elite athletes as they compete in top events. It becomes a study in human behavior. You just start to know, and that's very important, I think, in our role, is to know personalities, likes, dislikes, because it allows them to open up a little bit better. Isabel has also worked closely with the top executives and governing bodies. I can only be as successful as, as sort of how much you believe in PR. Because if you stifle what I'm doing or if there's not that, that trust or belief in sort of the communications piece of it and the PR, um, there's, I'm not going to add anything to your team. A native of Canada working for the Canadian Olympic Committee during the Vancouver Games is a career highlight, but Isabel also relishes her time spent working in UFC. We were just the weirdest little group who really had no background in MMA, but that was the point, is because they wanted to infuse the existing team with like outside-the-box ideas, reaching new audiences, talking to new media, kind of getting out of that MMA space. Check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. Please enjoy this episode featuring a conversation with Isabel McLemore, the Managing Director of Communications for USA Swimming on Credentials Only. Isabel, thanks so much for joining me on Credentials Only. I want to start off hearing about your athletic resume because you played a little bit of everything growing up it sounds like I did I was uh I was all over the map I think um growing up I I am I was is Canadian um so definitely on the ice I was a figure skater for many 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 years um did that to soccer soccer took up a lot of my life um kind of all the way up to the goal was to get a scholarship to the U.S. that was kind of got to that point Wish got wishy-washy going across the border sort of I was a definitely a home girl uh, mama's girl and so ended up staying at Canadian University and then walked onto a lacrosse team of all things so uh, played lacrosse in college uh, and then obviously just club club tennis so I, I was all over the map um, but that's that's the biggest thing love 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 sports always um, a part of my life and then uh, got realistic that when I started to be not so good, then I just started working in sports. <laughs> Was there ever a doubt that that's where you'd end up working is in sports? No, no. Um, no. To do something that you love, you know, the whole cliche of like doing something, there was never, it was always going to be that. Now what sport I was totally open to, I, you know, I love, um, a lot of different ones. I love watching a lot of different ones, following a lot of different ones. So that was helpful because I could have landed anywhere. Um, but it was, I was passionate about for sure sports, promoting it, talking about it, um, watching it. So how did you get your breakthrough? Uh, internship. Whenever I do some, whenever I talk to students and and those kind of incoming, I'm like, you cannot, I cannot 
um, tell you enough the importance of internships, getting your foot in the door, the impression that you can make, the people that you can meet. And the, uh, the number one thing is um, don't let them ever tell you that, that there's no job. That is just an internship because if you make an impression, if you, you know, kick ass in your job, they will find a way. They will find a way. Um, and I was, I was very fortunate. I was in that position. I was an intern and, and they found a way. My first job, Tennis Canada, um, which is, I think, where we met like 20 years ago. Um, uh, don't, don't say that part. That, you just said the quiet part out loud. Come on. <laughs> but cut, cut. Um, yeah, and then I got, to, I got that, you know, coveted coordinator's position. And then from there, it was, it was literally all about the people I met along the way. And then it opened doors. I was thought of when opportunities came up. And that just set me kind of on my trajectory. Tennis Canada, an interesting place to start because you're kind of servicing a few different goals. You're a national governing body. You're trying to grow the sport participation. You guys also happen to host two of the biggest events in the world with Rogers Cup in Toronto and, and Montreal. How diverse was all that work that you were doing for that organization? Oh, I mean, you, you hit on it. It's so many different hats because it's so many different audiences. Um, and so you've got, you obviously have to nurture and care for these major events that you touched on because those are your revenue drivers. That's what's going to bring the money in the door to be able to take care of your grassroots, to be able to support kind of the clubs around the country, the national events, the provincial events. Um, and so everything is really interlaced and, and really important, but more than anything, the, having the two major professional events provided the spotlight that you needed for the sport in Canada. And of all eyes around the country, um, lack of cared about tennis for those two weeks. And then you could talk about everything else going on in the country and really get the promotion that you needed for it. And that would have, that would have been a big miss if we didn't have those platforms. As you look at tennis now in Canada, you've had Milos and Jeannie come along and now there's this under 21 generation, Dennis, Felix, and the U.S. Open champion, Bianca Andreescu. Could you see seeds of that success when you were at Tennis Canada 15 years ago? Oh gosh. Um, yeah, when you talk, I don't, I, I can't, I don't know ages exactly. Were, were they born 15 years ago? <laughs> were they, <laughs> we have not had a 15 year old US Open champion. They're all, they're all at least 19. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I was in like a Daniel Nestor area and, uh, you know, and he was carrying it for Canada. Um, but they're absolutely, I mean, when they, when it, when summer comes in Canada, those summer sports get turned on and they, and there are young, talented athletes across the country who are getting into whether it's tennis, whether it's soccer, whether it's, um, so there's a lot of talent and there was a lot of investment in the grassroots efforts and sort of finding in those pockets of training camps across the country to, to look for it. And I think now you're seeing it pay off because again, they would have reached these young kids that now are, are hitting their prime. So it does take that long. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, and so I think, you know, back in the day, uh, Stacy also worked with Stacy Allister, who was there. Um, it, we're making those right decisions 15, 15, 10, 15 years ago. You then left Tennis Canada. Where did you go and what did you do next? I did. I left. Um, I, my next stop was uh, in Florida at the WTA. Um, so 
this was a this was a very natural transition. Obviously, when we talked about the Rogers Cup and the women's tournament specifically run by the WTA, so I had a chance to work with that team, meet those people um, who are are still very dear friends of mine. Um, and the role opened up, manager of communication, and um, sort of said, "Hey, why don't you know put your name in the hat? Why don't you try try doing this?" And and there's always the uh, there's the extra barrier, extra step. I was Canadian coming down to. Uh, um, for a U.S. job, but the WTA is a global organization. So, you know, we touched on it, the tennis, Canadian tennis players, tennis players from all over the world. Um, I spoke French and bilingual, so it was definitely um, bringing some assets to the table. And, and there you go, moved down to Florida and, and spent uh, nearly four years at the tour. A lot of that work with the tour was going to events. What is the typical day at a tournament in that role you had? Gosh, um, my first day on the job, I was flying to Berlin. I was, uh, I was 20, I was 25 and I spent the first three weeks of my job in Berlin and Rome and at the French open. Um, it, looking back on it, like it's, it's surreal to, to think that and, and you learn, you're learning on the go. It's a lot of shadowing. It's a lot of, it's busy. I mean, you know, better than anyone when you are boots on the ground at an event, you don't stop. You don't stop. You're up. You're there before the athletes get there, before the gates open. Um, you're prepping notes, talking to media, setting up the interviews, chasing the athletes down, and then you're there after the last. You know, the last match is done. Interviews are done. Everybody's gone. Gates are locked, and then you're leaving. Um, so those are long days, and I would not change it for the world. It's exhilarating to travel the world. But there's some challenges when you have to go operate in these different markets. What did you find, both sides of it, exhilarating and challenging? Oh, God, challenging. I got to the point, I think, where many of my colleagues refused to travel with me because I would get, I had the worst luck in the world. Um, <laughs> if I recall correctly, actually, I believe there was one instance where we were going to Australia, you and I, and you were sitting on a United flight as my delayed flight got to the gate and they closed the door on me. And you were sitting on the plane and they would not let me on the plane. There was, there was a few of us, but I specifically remember this instance where you were there and I had to wait 24 hours for the next flight to Australia. You uh, got a day in LA out of it. It was all good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I didn't, uh, that, yeah, that, you know, that sucked. That, that was never <laughs> It was, uh, I experienced many of those moments, but exhilarating seeing the world, different cultures, different people. Um, I always had an appreciation for that. Um, and I was, I was glad that that was a part of it. Um, difficult is, again, I think you can highlight those exact same things. Sometimes culture, language barrier, um, personality differences with journalists in, in various different countries that you had to manage and, um, and, and do your best to, to work with. But, um, so that ends up being, it's a, you know, coin flip. This is both good and bad. And you've got the advantage of being bilingual, but not necessarily going to help you that you can speak French when you're in Berlin, for example. So how did you prepare for these trips to learn that culture? And, and I know this was not just limited to your time in tennis. You had yeah. to know this throughout your career. Yeah. Um, finding amazing local resources you know you you have to you have to have those those folks on the ground that you trust that you can work with um body language 
gosh, reading, reading the room, learning to read the room, the tone, the, the feeling, the body language, when you go back to, yeah, one of, one of those memories that just stuck with me that um, I think of, and I think of often is uh, hosting a press conference in Rome all in Italian. The athlete was Italian. So then you're at a, a further loss because then there is absolutely no translation because local athlete, local media, um, and you could sort of feel the tension rising and to the point where the athlete started crying. And so you knew that they were peppering her with, with pretty, pretty heavy questions. And uh, that, was the, that was really, I think, my first moment of, of kind of helplessness of God, God, how do I protect her? How do that's my job. And, and sort of from that moment on, it was, it was more aware, I think, than ever of not getting myself in that situation again, of preempting that. So whether it's something in your ear, someone's translating it for you, you're never left in the dark. That's probably the worst place you can be. And so it's kind of like use, utilizing all those tools so you're not in that spot. And you're working with individual athletes there, and you're, you're obviously representing the tour, but you have to adapt to the different personalities of these 100 or so different women who are out here going after each other to try to get to the top. Yeah. What were the unique aspects of that oh gosh um you're you're absolutely right it is different personalities it is different personalities on different days um, it was uh it was always exciting but but that's the part of it and it's like you, it becomes a study in human behavior and i think that's like the better you can do that the better you have a leg up because it's you you just start to know you and that's very important i think in our role is to know personalities likes dislikes because then it allows them to open up a little bit better so you know someone likes to get a media you know get a, a media question or, or interview in a certain way you should present it to them like this they need to be you need to talk to them a certain way um, that has always been the case I um, you know looking back at it and I don't know that I've ever really analyzed this it's unique and I've I've always had to work with athletes like that. So in every single one of my roles, I've never had a home team. I've never had um, athletes in one place. So it, you you end up managing like how to how to reach out to them, where they are, meeting them where they are, like making sure you tailor it to them, um, and just figuring it out. I found with my role with the ATP, and I want to know if you found this with the WTA, there was as much as the players didn't necessarily love to see us coming at them with these requests, there was a certain kinship because they knew that we had missed that flight or our laundry got lost or whatever those trials and tribulations are of being on the road. There is almost some respect from the player because they know you're going through the same nonsense that they are. D did you find that? And how much did that help you and give you a little more credibility to do your job? Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely there. Uh, we, we joke around, right? As you, you see the PR person walking down the hall and the athlete will turn around and run the opposite direction because they're like, ah, I know they're coming at me with something. One, you never want to get to that place, which is always, always have those conversations, mix them in with the ones where you're not asking them to do something. Um, super, super important. But it's also, you PR, the PR team was so central to so much of what was going on with the athletes because everybody else realized the relationships that were there. 
and the relationships that have been built. And I think for exactly what you're saying is that appreciation and understanding that we're doing the exact same thing as them, but the longer hours, we're sort of chasing them around the world as they're doing what they're, what they love. And we're just doing it because we also love what we're doing. Um, but that appreciation of, um, a little bit tougher, maybe, uh, on, on the PR, the PR gang. You then returned to Canada to work for the Canadian Olympic committee. And the timing of that had to make it a pretty incredible opportunity for you. When did you get there and why was it so special? And I, I did not fully appreciate that. I think when I, when I first started at, at the Canadian Olympic committee, um, it was the same thing. I was ready to go home. I, uh, I, I really appreciated the, the WTA tour was absolutely wonderful. We even did sort of a distance transition. I worked from home before COVID hit. I worked from home uh, from Toronto for uh, for a year and sort of got to that transition point of, okay, what do I want? I know I want to be here. So I need to look for something, um, for something more home-based uh, rather than going back to Florida or sort of or keep going with the WTA. And, and uh, timing, timing was, there was a manager of, uh, of media relations open at the Canadian Olympic Committee and um, worked out well, sort of got, got myself my foot in the door. And then I think realized at that point, like you knew they were coming, you knew they were talked about, but really understanding what I was going to be a part of, um, how I was going to contribute to just this incredible thing that would take over the country um, and this amazing legacy. I had no idea on day one. Um, and then it, it, I quickly figured it out because it was only uh, 15 months before the game. So it was, they were rocking and rolling and it was busy. Um, but that is just one of my most incredible moments of my career is, is, is work in those games. And it has to be something when you work in Olympics, that's a unique experience, but to be working in Olympics in your home country, working with the athletes who are representing your country, I would imagine, yes, that there was no stop before the 2010 games started. But once you got to Vancouver, did you ever just not have goosebumps as you were walking around? Not at all. It was, it was just on for five weeks. I was in Vancouver for five weeks. And from day one, you're on the ground, you get your credential, you've got all the gear, you're moving into the athlete's village. I lived in the athlete's village for, for the whole duration of it. And, um, you're hearing your national anthem everywhere because you're the host country. And, and then we win more gold than we, than any other country. And you win the big hockey game and you just, it was just one after the other. It was my 30th birthday in the middle of the games. And it was, it was, uh, intense. intense. Did I ever crash on the way home after that? But just, unlike anything else. And I don't know what would ever replicate it. I mean, I say that I, I very recently, um, a week ago now became an American. Um, and so if I stick around and the, you know, USA swimming in the next uh, eight years and go to LA, is it going to be the same thing? Maybe, maybe I do. I don't, I don't know that anybody has that, that opportunity to replicate that, um, for a second time. But if, uh, if it comes anywhere close to Vancouver, it will be just amazing. So what was the work you had to do staying in that athlete's village while all these Canadians are having the success? 
Whew. Well, I um, so I was housed, my hub was actually at Canada Olympic House during the games. So I bounced around to support at venues when needed, but mainly at Canada Olympic House. And that included a lot of, we do sort of those medal ceremonies. So as athletes won, they would come through and they'd be recognized with whomever was there that evening, whether it's family, friends, um, supporters, sponsors, that sort of thing. Um, so really good opportunity to celebrate with the athletes as they came through. Obviously being in the village, for anybody who may not be as familiar, there are um, media opportunity or media areas in the village. And so it's very convenient for the athletes. They'll go down their flight of stairs, step into the room, boom, you can do a media interview there rather than have them having to leave. So it helped facilitate those. Um, and, and really it was just, I wasn't, because I worked for the COC, I wasn't dedicated to one specific sport. And so you were just rolling in and out of like all of the athletes as they were, as they were being successful, what they, what were they doing? Um, and then supporting the attaches. There's that run up to the Olympics, which you said basically was nonstop. Then you have those five weeks where you're ready to crash at the end. However, you've just had the most successful games in your country's history. How did you guys pivot to exploit that and keep that momentum going you uh oh yeah i mean it was you got 48 hours and then it's exactly what you say is now what do we do i mean now the, the whole country is still on a high like what how are we what are we going to do with this um so we ended up we uh, had a parade in Mon in montreal uh, f a few weeks later so set up a big parade with our athletes um which uh canada doesn't normally do that 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 doesn't it's a very american thing um and 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 in fairness i think there hasn't really been a professional team that has caused for that to happen in a real time <laughs> in canada um and so that was fun that was that was great that gave their athletes their moment that was their their opportunity to sort of revel and relish in, in what they had accomplished that was covered across the country um, and then a lot of interviews, a lot of follow-up, keeping it relevant, top of mind, because again, all of this is going to trickle down into support at the grassroots for these sports and, and getting that next generation excited. Where are those next athletes coming from? Um, and you have a, a small window to do that. You then took a, a pretty big pivot. What came next? My God, um, I remember my mother's <laughs> reaction. <laughs> I had, um, you know, if, if it's fair to say, if, if you would agree, I had been in very uh, traditional and very politically correct sports up until that time. And then uh, my colleague who worked, who I worked with at the Canadian Olympic Committee um, had actually been recruited to lead communications in the newly opened Toronto office for the ultimate fighting championship, UFC. And they, uh, they were looking for people in Las Vegas and they had, they, they had kind of gotten to that point in Las Vegas. The sport had gotten to that point where they wanted to break out of that niche market. They were massive. They were skyrocketing. They just signed in the Fox deal. It was taking off and they wanted, they were looking for comms people who were from outside of the sport to bring new ideas in who, who didn't necessarily know anything. I did not know anything about MMA. I put my hand up. I admit it. I told my mother I was moving to Las Vegas to work for UFC. And she said, I'm, excuse me, <laughs> what are you? 
Um, and, and that's what I did. I, uh, it's actually the, the tomorrow, tomorrow is the anniversary of nine years ago. Oh, wow. And, uh, I, I started at UFC and, and we were an eclectic little PR group of, I had come from the Olympic movement. My colleague had come from the NHL, the MLB. Um, and then our, the, the vice president at the time had come from fashion. And, and so we were just the weirdest little group who really had no background in MMA, but that was the point is because they wanted to infuse the, 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 the existing team with like outside the box ideas, reaching new audiences, talking to new media, kind of getting out of that MMA space. So what was the learning curve? Oh God. Um, I was, I was queasy at seeing blood before starting there. So that, oh, geez. <laughs> that, Certainly um, one part of it. It's uh, and so got over that relatively quickly. Um, definitely uh, got an incredible appreciation for the athletes um, beforehand. I think probably had similar view as many people who don't understand or follow MMA. Um, and then and then after working there and after experiencing that, just realizing. Uh, the athleticism that these athletes have and the training and the discipline and, and everything that goes into it. Um, so that was important, but I think by this time and what, you know, like I'm sure no more than anything in PR is like you develop the skills along the, through the years, you develop the relationship with the people that really is applicable to anything is you're taking it from job to job and you're, you, you, that's, that's what you're bringing with you is those skills. And so once I got more familiar with MMA and, and figured out the sport and, and, and the athletes, it's kind of like had the tools. So those, those are already, already there. And then just um, um, helping to grow it even more. And obviously was there when they had the biggest, uh, the biggest purchase and sale and in, in sports, sports history. And it was part of that. And it was, it was, uh, a, a sort of, I don't even know like what the incline was of the growth of the sport when I was there. Um, and they're still, they're still growing because they, this is shock and awe. You're right. And that's Dana's specialty. That is, that is why it is so successful because he will continue to surprise you. You mentioned Dana. What is it like to work with him? <laughs> he is, um, he is awesome. He, he, when you talk about loyalty, when you talk about, um, just passion and it, like he embodies all of that. Um, am I, it, I'd be lying if I said it was easy. Uh, I mean, my job is, uh, was it sort of tail end, especially corporate communication, crisis communication, and you're dealing with someone who doesn't care what anybody thinks and doesn't, uh, is not going to be told how to act, what to do, what to say. Um, and, uh, and, and that's good. He's been successful from day one. And so why, why would he change? But obviously it's a lot of, um, chasing up after him and, and, uh, and following up on a lot of stuff <laughs> in his wake. You're going from, you know, really back in the tennis days where, yes, those players wanted to beat each other, but there was a camaraderie on the road. And, and yes, there were some clicks within it, but everybody got along to these people literally want to beat each other up. Yes. What is that athlete environment like and how do you work within that? But, but they leave it in the octagon. 
you know what I mean? Like they, they, um, there's obviously, there's obviously showmanship. There's obviously a, a theatrical side of it when you talk about the weigh-ins and when you talk about the hype. Um, and that's, that's, that's what makes it successful. But when it comes down to it, there is so much respect between these two athletes that they're saying, I'm going to get into the octagon. This is what I have to do in the octagon. This is what I'm going to do to you because I want to win. Um, and it's, that's part of the sport, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's boxing, whether it's wrestling there, these are all Olympic disciplines. Like when you, when you talk about it, like the, they have to be experts in Olympic disciplines and they get it over and you'll see 90% of the fights, the fighters are embracing at the end of it because they're like, I respect you walked in that door closed. You gave it everything you had, no hard feelings. And then, and you know, we walk out and because that's, that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we love to do. And I think maybe more than anything, more than tennis, more than anything, they're able to leave it in the octagon and sort of that, that understanding of, of that is what you had to do to me to win. Um, whereas any, any other sport, if someone is yeah, a little bit, uh, whether it's whether it's loud or whether it's it's they may consider it underhanded or they, whatever the case they're like oh you're you're cheating or that's not fair or that's um you don't get that in mma because they're like you bring it that's let's do it and then then we move on you mentioned your corporate communications role i want to talk about that in a second but you started there doing international communications mm -hmm. and for a sport that's trying to grow but has that global appeal that was probably a very unique opportunity what did that role entail gosh absolutely um there were several offices around the world and so uh vegas being the global headquarters obviously where all the, the executive team was um the main office but there were there were areas in the world where i think this had been around a lot longer it was more embedded in the culture think brazil um, MMA and, and mixed martial arts, uh, very, very long history in that market. Um, and so that office was doing very well up and running, but I think it could grow even more. They knew that. Then you, Asia, where mixed martial arts is from, we had a, an office in Japan, held many events there um, in Hong Kong. And so, again, just drawing from them, I think, on the experience of, of the sport and sort of the history of it, but then helping to grow it, um, helping to whether that was new deals, broadcast deals, partner deals, um, and then expanded, you know, the Toronto office had just opened up, then they opened up an Australian office, and there was a group there, and so I saw that expansion. Um, the London office took off even more um, because they were tapping into the all these markets where they knew they had fans um, and they could do more and, and gosh they did so your front row seat for this international expansion which probably made it pretty easy to then continue to tell the business story what does it mean to do corporate communications for a brand like ufc Whew. um first you gotta get people to listen to you that's <laughs> that 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 was the biggest thing that was probably the biggest struggle is um, convincing those business journalists and convincing uh, those sort of true sports journalists that UFC was on par with these major sports, um, that it had 
all of the same elements. It had all of the same, um, the same opportunities. The money was there. I mean, you saw that in the sale of it. And, and so one, it was just getting your foot in the door to get them to talk to you, talk to you and, and hear these things and, and better understand because more than anything, I think that was a really hard audience that had a pre, uh, determined or understanding of what they thought MMA was, what they thought UFC was. Um, and that went back to, you know, you see those, those clips all the time of John McCain and saying it was human cockfighting and, um, and that's still the world that they lived in. Uh, so that was probably the biggest, um, the, the hardest thing was, was breaking that barrier. Um, and then, and then working on still the, the right reg, getting regulation of it. Um, and New York was a big, was a big piece of that. So helping, you know, it was, it was, um, awesome to be able to be a part of that team to help get MMA um, regulated in New York. It's quite the success story, all that growth. What made the organization so successful? It'd be hard to say anything else other than Dana White. Um, he was, and, and that's, that's not necessarily fair. It'd be Dana White and the Fertitta brothers. Um, they were behind the scenes and he was very much uh, in the forefront. But their, um, their business sense, their dedication to this, their um, no-quit attitude is, is why it's here today is why it is what it is today. Because the number of people who said no, the number of people who slammed doors in their faces, um, this could have easily been one of those, oh yeah, do you remember that thing? Do you remember that thing that started like 20 years ago? God, where'd that go? Um, and uh, it's the only reason it's here today. How do you then work through some of the challenges? You mentioned the, the getting New York State approval and um, regulations and everything. What is that process like within that organization with those executives? Um, it's uh, there was a good team. There, there was an incredible team of leaders. You know, Lorenzo once said, um, and it was a comment that kind of stood with me. He was like, "You know what? I uh, I, I own the business, and obviously, he was he he was at the top of the business because." The, my role is to re surround myself that are with people that are smarter than me and sort of rely on those people and trust those people. And that's what he did. I mean, that's what he did from the business development to the sports side, to the, to the um, regulatory side and the legal side. I mean, he, they built a team of people that they trusted in and that they would, um, they respected, they respected their feedback. And I think that's why it was very successful because you had just this group of people that um, helped propel it and kind of take it to the next level. And that, that goes all the way back to when I started in 2011, they knew back then that if we wanted to take this to the next level, we needed to bring in those other people to help us and to be a part of this and to believe in this and, and then help others believe in this. Um, and so they did that from the, from the top down. Were there ever doubts that you, as, along the way that it could get that kind of mainstream acceptance that you were striving to, to help deliver? Not when I was there because there were a lot of people before me who put in blood, sweat and tears who faced those years. Um, when I got there, uh, we'd signed the deal with Fox. 
you were expanding globally. Pay-per-view was doing amazing, incredible numbers, was uh, doubling, tripling kind of every year. So I, I was never part of those years. You know, it, it, I, I wouldn't, I can't say, there's really, there's others who um, can absolutely say that they went through that. Um, and I think I got there when, all right, get on the roller coaster because, because we're taking off. You left the octagon and you've jumped in the pool. You mentioned working with USA Swimming. What is your current job? So I am the managing director of communications at USA Swimming. So we were the uh, national governing body of the sport in the U.S. A lot of people don't realize it's 400,000 members across the U.S. And so you'll have um, swim teams, I mean, from coast to coast. And it goes, it's from grassroots. Obviously, we start sort of post that learn to swim once you get into competitive swimming. That's when really our membership starts all the way up to the Olympic team. And the Olympics every four years will, or should be obviously a little bit of a scheduling difference this year, but yeah, what is that kind of cycle? I know you joined mid cycle coming up to these Tokyo games, but what is kind of the cycle between those? Cause that's obviously the pinnacle, but there is so much more in between. Absolutely. Yeah. So four year cycle called the quad um, and uh, post game starts the next day after the games finish uh, starts immediately and um, and then it'll it'll alternate. So you'll have competitions leading up to the Olympic Games where there's the World Championships, the Pan Pacific Championships, and they alternate years. And so those will be your major international competitions um, as you head to the Olympic Games. And I mean, everything you do, all of your competitions, your international events, your team building, um, everything leads up to the Olympic Games. Because for these for these athletes, um, some are amateur, some or, or, or professional, um, but that is that is the pinnacle of their career. Oftentimes, if they can end up going more than once, amazing. Um, but sometimes that's it. Sometimes you know you make it to your one games, and um, and that's your career. Within this role, what's the relationship like with the USOPC, and then with all the other Team USA entities in different sports? Um, great role. It's it's. It's, uh, I have the benefit, obviously, when we talk about having been at, at the Canadian Olympic Committee, is I have the appreciation and the benefit of understanding that USOPC role. <clears throat> so I think that's helpful to me. Um, USA Swimming is, is one of the, if not the, very, very selfishly, the preeminent uh, national governing body. Um, and so we have a great relationship with the USOPC. Obviously, our athletes, um, are oftentimes many of the high level and, and very uh, notable athletes who are on the team. So we work very closely with them when it comes to interview times, promoting the games, the teams, they're, they're using a lot of swimmers. Um, and so we, and we come up shortly, we've got uh, the year out to knock on wood, the games next year. Um, and so I had a call uh, with them a little earlier because again, using some of our athletes to promote that next year. Do you lean on the others? There's USA Cycling, USA. I mean, every, every sport has its own federation within the USOPC family. How much do you guys help each other out? And obviously, some probably are better situated than others. 
Yeah, it's good. We do have um, we do have those opportunities. We'll tap into um, the other sports. First of all, it's good to have those relationships because at some point you're all going to go through the same thing. So whether it's this year, the delay of the Olympic Games, everybody, that, that affected everybody in the Olympic movement. Um, and so to have those relationships, be able to have those conversations, um, it's also good with just knowing, seeing what they're doing with their athletes. We're all in the same boat. Your athletes are everywhere around the country. There's no home base. Um, so how are you dealing with that tips and, and tricks and um, best practices? So very much have discussions with those those individuals. The USOPC helps facilitate that as well on on a bit of a sort of a quarterly annual basis. Um, so you, that that's there. But then aside from that, you're really you're you're focused on your own things. Um, you're focused on promoting your sport, but you have that resource there. I know this isn't necessarily your situation, but you're way closer to it, and, and I value your insight on this. For the USOPC there is going to be an unbelievable, unprecedented turnaround to go from Tokyo to Beijing for the summer games to the winter games. What is that going to be like for that organization? My gosh. Um, I mean, you've, you've nailed it. It's unprecedented. Not only have you historically always had a shorter gap of time between the summer games and the, and the winter games, um, because it ends up being only a year and a half versus it's two and a half years on the other end. Now you're down to six months. So put in perspective for everybody, six months turnaround time for athletes, coaches, countries, like preparations. It's just, they won't stop. Um, um, <laughs> we talk about burnout. I mean, I, I, I hope they're going to really take care of themselves because there is very much the, the possibility of that. It's, it's intense. It's heavy. But I think they'll also be smart. And so you're going to have to do a lot of the lead up and legwork for the winter games a lot earlier than you would have. You're going you're gonna to end up doing it at the same time, even before the, the summer games or the games in, uh, um, happen in Tokyo because you can't get caught with only six months to go to promote the winter games. We've talked a little bit about this, but I want to do a deeper dive. USA Swimming and Tennis Canada, that grassroots component, because that's completely different than working with the world-class athletes and everything. You're yeah. telling a completely different story to a totally different audience. So just talk me through a little bit more of that grassroots outreach and how you do that as an organization through your PR roles. Local level, local, local, local. You have to go local. Um, so it's a lot of uh, arming. In our case, you know, we have uh, we have three thousand clubs around the country. We have we're broken up into fifty nine LSCs, which many of them are across state lines or follow state lines. A few extras, um, but you have to. So it's arming people with how to help tell your story. So it's whether it's press, re press release templates or story ideas or, and then you having to push these out to the local market. Because I mean, my team is four people. So we're definitely not 
out into the local markets to be able to promote 325,000 athletes. It's just not going to happen. And so it's create, how do you create the tools, um, to have, to have tentacles that reach out into the local markets. Um, so you, you know, you capitalize on when you can, those national, uh, opportunities, and that's obviously when our national team is off, whether it's the world championships or national championships, and you capitalize on those platforms. Um, but if not, it's everything you can possibly do to get Jimmy from Iowa highlighted in his local paper or on his t- television channel, and then you help push and promote that because then, great. Then they'll get excited about swimming. They'll follow Jimmy. Hopefully Jimmy does well. And then by the time, you know, maybe Jimmy gets to the national team, you've got this base of supporters in that market. I want to kind of go more broadly now, talking best practices from all your various experiences. You mentioned having a team. How do you coalesce the team, lead the team as you go through various projects? I'm uh, I'm incredibly like I have an amazing group of folks who are super self starters love really love what they're doing um, so, you know we've got some digital and social and then corporate and um, and so they're they're really great at what they do and then they've learned this sort of passion for swimming um, and so together it's people I can rely on I can lean on um, and more than anything I think people who are going to get creative. In, in what they do. And so that's kind of how we challenge ourselves. It's like how let's not do it. We're all relatively new as well. So status quo is not, is not an excuse. We're not think outside the box. Why are we doing what we're doing? Is it because we've always done it? Let's do it differently. Um, and that's super important. Um, in, in especially a small team because you're going to have to do uh, a number of different things, wear different hats, um, and just be willing to do so. Managing and working with executives is a big piece of the PR job. What's your approach to learning a new executive as you get into a new situation, but then also then working with them through the highs? And unfortunately, a lot of times the PR guy only shows up. They're like the players. They want to run the other way when they see the PR person coming. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Personalities. When you go back to that personality, um, when you get to, I mean, you know, this, the number of times I actually said this to our, our president and CEO, uh, even a couple weeks ago, and he thought it was a little weird, but at the same time, and I was like, but that, that's the whole point of it. It's like, gosh, I really get in the mindset. I mean, like I hear you in my head when I'm writing things, because obviously as a PR person, I am writing a lot of his stuff, just like with any executive. Um, and you have to get to that point. You have the voice, the tone, the vision. You, you have to understand that that's the biggest thing. But it goes the other way too. I mean, there has to be, I I remember telling Tim when I first started, and this was actually in our interview, that I can only be as successful as, as sort of how much you believe in PR. Because if you stifle what I'm doing, or if there's not that, that trust or belief in sort of the communications piece of it and the PR, um, I'm not gonna add anything to your team. Um, and he is 
he has been incredible. And when you talk about like, he does, he values it. I'm at the table. It matters. It is, it is part of every conversation. Um, it is thought of as we are going through, whether exactly opportunity or crisis, um, it is a big component of what we do. And so one, having that trust, and then in the other side of it, being able to, uh, properly share his thoughts and his vision that's my job is I have to make sure I 100% am able to vocalize and communicate the vision that he has for the organization. When it comes to a crisis, what are a couple keys that you kind of rely on to help you manage any crisis situation? Um, don't get caught. Don't, don't, don't get caught scrambling. Um, and you will, and you will. So I say that tongue in cheek. Um, but as much as you can have to be ready. And so when something comes down, something happens, uh, you know, in our, in our case, we activate our priority communications team is what is what that is called. So, um, we've gotten to a really good place. Anybody across the organization will flag, uh, anything that appears to be a crisis flags it for me. We activate our priority communications team, which is our leadership team, and then any um, subject matter expert, depending on what it is, whether it's anti-doping, whether it's um, something very specific in nature. And then those people, the right people are at the table to discuss. You can't do anything in a vacuum. Don't ever try and solve anything in a vacuum because some people may have pieces of the puzzle that, that you don't know, but your job is delivery. So gather all of the information from the right person and then figure out the best way to deliver it. As the media landscape has changed, how has your job changed? Um, interestingly, uh, a little bit easier. I think. I'm, I'm thinking the last few months where everything's gone virtually. Uh, when you are uh, already working with your athletes from a distance, it's actually a very natural transition um, to, to go virtually and just sort of doing all these things because you have essentially been doing that. You've been doing distance relationships this whole time. Um, so we've, we've adapted well to that. Um, and then, I, you know, I think when you're looking at all the new virtual offerings and digital and podcasts and all across the different platforms, our athletes are, our athletes are game. Um, they are up for, they, they very, very different than professional athletes. They will do almost anything. They, they are happy to do it. They are excited. I know I see your face. <laughs> it is a pleasure. It is a pleasure because, um, they, they, they think it's fun. They, they think it's fun. They like the coverage. They're still, they're not jaded. Maybe that's the best way to put it. <laughs> the, advice you would give to people who are younger looking to break into this industry or rise up through it. They're already in somewhere. They've got their start. What would you tell them? Um, one meet as many people as you can meet as many people as you can, because you never know, um, who can be helpful to you down the road, who may one day be someone who can open a door for you. Um, what, no matter, regardless of the position or where they may be when you met them. Um, so keep those contacts, meet people, go out of your comfort zone, um, and keep those relationships. That's probably, that is the number one thing. Um, and then also be open to this. This goes back to the, the comment I made is like, build the skills, 
build the skills because the PR and communication skills are transferable. So you may want to work in MLB. You may die hard. You want to work in baseball. That's what you have your heart set on. If you don't get on with that first team or with a team when you're first getting out the door, don't, don't hang your head on it. Don't build the skills, build the skills. And then somewhere down the road, an MLB team will be falling over themselves to, to get you as part of their team. I want to finish with the set pieces. I do this uh, with every guest, six questions at the end of every episode. And I start asking what are podcasts and newsletters that you make sure you catch to stay informed and, and keep learning. Ooh, um, so I, I'm, I'm like wondering if my answers here are really not going to be very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I get up in the morning, uh, I try, try to head to the gym or, or at least sort of wake up and, and turn this on. But I do NPR up first is, is always on the docket. Um, I like that in the morning. I like my news. Um, and when I was in Toronto, it was 680 news. I was, I was a diehard, <laughs> a little bit nerdy on the news side. Um, and then, uh, and then newsletters, um, obviously just looking at those Olympic newsletters, um, that's just start the day. Uh, is it, is it weird if I say Google alerts? Is no. it, <laughs> I, just, I, I spend much time on Google alerts in the morning because I set, uh, I set a lot of them up just to make sure that I know what's going on, what I need to tackle heading into the office. Um, so that's pretty much, that's, that's pretty much my, my consumption in, uh, as I start my day. Are there any go-tos, though, on the Olympic news that are good ones to check out if you're wanting to get into the Olympic movement? Yeah, Inside the Games okay. is, is, a, is a probably popular one across the space. What are your most valuable files on social media, the posts you don't want to be missing? Yeah, you know who I, I love her personality is Nicole Arbach from The, uh, the Athletic. Um, big fan. Uh, very witty. I think she's always, she's always got a lot of comments. So I definitely, I follow her always seeing her updates. Um, so that's, that's probably one that I will, I will source out as I'm on, as I'm on Twitter. A couple books you'd recommend people to read. So I, um, I enjoy mindless entertainment when I, when <laughs> I unplug and when I am doing, uh, non-work activities, I, I, it is, it is terrible. Like I'm, I'm in the very girly Hallmark movie. Um, and so I have gotten, um, hooked. I, I recently just did all the crazy rich Asians trilogy. Highly right. The movie was amazing. The books are awesome. Um, and again, there's absolutely no educational purpose in, in this, <laughs> in these books. They are just fabulous. Does that then kind of lead us right into streaming on TV? Yes. Oh, same thing. We cut the cord uh, last November. And so have been experienced sort of uh, trying to figure out the platforms that we want to use, what we want to, what we want to look into. Um, definitely Amazon Prime. That's on the docket. I Amazon everything. Uh, we've also Fubo TV is, a, is another big one, which I would Excited to see they're going to ESPN. So that's, that's very exciting. Um, home renovation shows, you know, we talked about it just 
before we started, I have gone back and watched all of the fixer uppers again um, because I I love that stuff because it's so foreign to me. I don't have an artistic bone in my body, and so I'm amazed at how they do all this stuff. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? <sighs> okay, I'm a Toronto girl. Uh, Toronto girl. So you go back to '93. Um, and you go back to Blue Jays and six game of the World Series, Joe Carter, home run in the ninth inning, back-to-back World Series. I, I did not have a sports family. My parents were not really into sports. They're more academics. And I can vividly remember it is on in our living room. It is on the living rooms across the country and just going absolutely crazy when, when that and just like passion for the Blue Jays and baseball. Uh, and I'm not necessarily a baseball fan. That, that isn't the, the sport I follow the most. But man, that is ingrained in my, in my memories of a long, long time ago. My last question. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where? I, in the drawer right next to me, on my desk, <laughs> right here. Uh, I do. I only keep a handful. Um, so I have, I have my Olympic games credential. I have one credential of, sorry, you know, I have him here. I've got like, this like old, old England Wimbledon. I've got one from every grand slam. So I've got, what is it? My French open, my Australian open. Um, I've got one from every grand slam, my Olympic credential, um, and then just my, my UFC employee credential. So sort of one from each and then and then hopefully uh hopefully tokyo next year but um other than that it's like kind of that memory of amazing accomplishment in that role and that was sort of the epitome of of that point in time i appreciate so much your time and talking to me today this was uh, enjoyable and such a great variety of experiences it was very very educational thank you so much isabel awesome thanks pete okay so I kind of feel like I have to defend myself here and point out that I really was doing everything I could for Isabel to hold that plane at LAX for her. In fact, if memory serves, I'm pretty sure I nearly got kicked off my own flight trying to help her out. Aside from holding a grudge about that so many years later, I do want to thank Isabel for joining me on Credentials Only, and I appreciate you listening. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. While you're there, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. And please, do leave a review on your favorite site for podcasts. Mike Bichet edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production. <laughs>